I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 235 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is Steve D., a systemic psychotherapist working in the NHS within the field of mental health social work. He's here to discuss his new book, Chaos Monk. For more, you can visit the blog, theblogofbaphomet.com. And Steve will be giving a talk together with Julian Vane at Treadwells, London, live via Zoom on May 25th. Visit treadwells-london.com or visit renderingunconscious.org for links and more information. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Every week we post exclusive content only at our Patreon on our magical and creative processes. Join us. Your support is so very appreciated. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. As usual, there is a video of this discussion at YouTube. Visit Trapar Films' YouTube page. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film. Hi, Steve. I'm so glad to have you back on the podcast. Thank you, Vanessa. It's lovely to be here. Really good. And I'm so excited to talk about your new book, or your book that came out last year, Chaos Monk. Yeah, yeah, I've got it here. Hey, here's the here's the picture. Hey, it's me. It's nice. me on the front as well. Haha, <laughs> with with a chaos star halo. So, um, you know, I'm not claiming sainthood, but um, it looks quite cool. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Well, it was it was really interesting. Um, so, I you know, well, I'm a great believer that I only write books, well, for two reasons really. One is that I really want to write a book, you know, that it's kind of like bubbling up and, you know, it, it feels like a genuine push to communicate something uh, into the universe. So that's the big one for me. And then the second one uh, is also that I've got a really big question for myself that I would like to try and answer or at least find the beginnings of an answer to. Um, so, yeah, so Chaos Monk, um, which I think is like the third or fourth book that I've written, um, kind of came out of some of those questions. Um, yeah, so, uh, and, you know, when I think back to why these are questions for me, this question about what is monasticism, what does that even mean, um, and more importantly, perhaps, you know, for me as a contemporary magical practitioner, what could it mean now? You know, what, you know, um, so there are these traditional forms of monasticism, but there's also this question for me, what could it mean now? Um, yeah, so that, so that, so those were some of the big questions that pushed me into doing this. And I think it came out at the right time, or it probably came out 
because we had the pandemic and everything, because you start the book by talking about, you know, what are our priorities and really thinking about like what we really want in life and what really do we want to prioritize. And I feel like that's a huge thing that came out of the COVID period is like reassessing kind of what's important in our lives and what we really want to hold value on. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think almost inevitably we were kind of stripped back and, and forced, forced to relinquish some, a lot of things, a lot of things we didn't want to relinquish either, like, you know, relationships, touch with people we were close to, um, lots of difficult things. Um, but it really did challenge and, uh, and cause me to reevaluate, you know, um, and so someone, a friend of mine called this book, my COVID baby. And it was like, um, I think you're right. I think there's a sense, um, to that, um, you know, my own sort of um, journey with this was um, when I was studying theology as sort of 19, 20 year old. Um, so I was studying theology, as you know, at a seminary. And one of the potential paths that I was exploring was becoming um, a Franciscan friar. So becoming like a monk um, properly, you know, properly inverted commas, but within within like a a mainstream church. Um, and while that didn't work out for me, um, ultimately, for a variety of reasons, um, it kind of highlighted like an urge in myself, it's part of my makeup, my personality. Um, and we could discuss why but you know, that sort of introversion and that, um, I suppose, asceticism, to some degree that's part of probably who I am um yeah that that the triggered you know as I've kind of come into a more kind of occult magical way of thinking those sort of urges and drives and the shape of my personality hasn't entirely gone away no absolutely and it, they absolutely go together uh, it's very interesting to see you merge kind of chaos magic with this monastic uh lifestyle um and i think we might have talked about it before but the only time i've been to a proper monastery that was still functional not like a ruin um was in big sur california there's a benedictine monastery there and uh it was amazing to be able to stay there i had a, a ex-boyfriend whose father was uh had become converted and become a benedictine monk later in his life and so we were able to go and like visit him and stay there. And um, it really is a nice communal lifestyle. They all worked together and did the cooking and the cleaning and they had a little bookstore and um, they got up at like 4 a.m. for Vespers oh. and everything. And the church was this like octagonal kind of wooden church that was like, you know, we're in Big Sur, like on this mountain, like in the redwood forest, you know. And because we were up so high on this mountain, you could see like the Milky Way and the center of the church was like open and had this like big wooden cross hanging down. It was like very simple, but like super elegant. And yeah, it was amazing I, to be there. I think we stayed there for like two weeks. I think I, I know, is it Benedictine or is it the one that's Carmeladies? The one that's like, um like, do they live as solitaries most of the time? Is that the one? And and it's kind of because when you're describing that church, I think mm -hmm. I've seen. Uh, do they wear white or do it's they right wear black? It's right near Eslin. 
No, they yeah. were they were uh they were wearing like brown robes, but like light brown, not too dark. They were pretty light. Okay. Um, but it's right near Esalen Institute, so I'm sure a lot of psychedelic people end up over there as well. <laughs> I think a lot of cool things happen in California, like <laughs> yeah. from the 1950s onwards, and there are these little outposts of yeah, intensity. And I, you know, and I think for me. That was part of the, when I was trying to boil down what is monasticism or what does the monastic impulse within us perhaps represent, you know, and I, th I was thinking about that drive towards intensity and focus. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I think that's present within monast formal monastic orders, um, but those of us uh, who are artists um, or who are magicians or psychotherapists, we can probably feel... Or all three. <laughs> or, or all of those, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's a special level of intensity or, you know, um, or obsession. And liking to be left aloneness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I was I was also wondering, I don't know what you think about this, about, you know, that that kind of classic Jungian slightly sim oversimplistic introvert extrovert you know um dialectic and and you know that that idea of the introvert being someone who has to top up their resources from their internal world through quiet um yeah i, I don't know yeah I, I think that fits to some degree to that sort of monastic drive Absolutely. Why don't you talk a little bit about what your journey's been like? Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, so what in relation to monasticism? Yeah, whatever you want. Yeah, so so I, there was definitely a period, um, as I said, when I was studying theology and I was considering becoming a, a, an Anglican or an Episcopal priest that I was going to become a monk within the Episcopal Church, uh, a Franciscan friar. Um, and I think I was drawn to the kind of radicalism of that, um, the political radicalism of that sort of vocation and the, the radical simplicity and, and stripping everything back. Um, now, I didn't pursue that. Um, I met my partner um, and... Uh, ironically she was going to become a nun um and um so we used to go to these monasteries together and hang out and you know and eventually um we got together um so the the kind of call to celibacy had to go on the back burner um thankfully for a while um and yeah but there was definitely that urge that I think for me then got directed more into social work so, you know, I became a social worker and, as you know, I've kind of done that for the last kind of 30 years as well as psychotherapy. So that um, desire to, for my spirituality to mean something in in day-to-day -day life, I think is a really powerful drive for me. And and before we started recording, we were talking about bodhisattvas you know, um, and and the dogs in our life being bodhisattvas. But, yeah, you know, that for me, that the bodhisattva within, like, the Mahayana Buddhist tradition kind of represents that um, 
whatever enlightenment I gain, it has to be put to good work, you know, in relationship um, and in politics and in economics, all of those things. Um, and if they aren't being put into good use, we might want to question how deep those realizations are. Um, yeah, and so then, you know, for me, I, I think we talked about before when we had the last podcast, I had a, a major sort of transition or opening up of my faith and that involved, you know, the work of Jung um, and then getting involved in uh, Gnostic things and magical things. Um, that's probably, you know, over 25 years ago now. And, you know, so that monastic sort of drive, although I was entering into a magical world that superficially uh, might stress things like um, indulgence, partying, um, uh, you know, you know that, that kind of rich, opulent decadence. And there is that aspect to it, which is really important. Um, but there's this other bit of that dialectic that's about discipline and um, asceticism and um, arguably masochism, you know, all sorts of interesting things that I felt kind of... Um, especially in the chaos magic world, you know, a lot of my friends who are chaos magicians are really hard partiers. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you go to magical meetings and people are kind of like, you know, they like having a good time and, and that's fine. But I always felt like the guy who was, who was in the kitchen at parties, you know, where I'd be sitting in the corner with my book, drinking my cup of tea. And, 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 and that was cool. You know, that was cool. But even in the depths of my kind of magical practice, and however hardcore that became, I didn't want to let go of the, the true sense of who I needed to be, you know, as a quieter person, as an introvert, as um, a reflective person. And I think as I've developed my own magical practice, uh, and I think this is reflected in the book, um, I've become increasingly interested in the rediscovery of kind of receptive practices and contemplative practices within the broader kind of pagan tradition. You know, I think um, I think we're very good uh, in in occult in in occulture and in magical communities at being loud and verbal and uh, demonstrative. But, but the flip side is, you know, where is the receptive? Where is the quiet? Where is the dark in that sense? Um, so, yeah, so part of my own journey, I think, has been trying to recover those things for myself so that my magic uh, felt like a real representation of who I am. Uh, and I don't know if it fits for you, but I think uh, as magicians our magic becomes more real when we can truly become ourselves. You know, um, there's, there's that really great verse um, from the gospel of Thomas, which goes something like, um, if we bring that, which that, which with, is within us um, outside, it can save us. But if we do not bring it forth, it will destroy us. So we have to bring out our own reality in order to, 
save ourselves and be ourselves. And if we don't, we risk suppression, repression, all the things that, you know, uh, we might want to avoid. No, that's a really good point. And especially as people, those of us who become therapists as well, it's like, you know, you're taught to be, you know, so much for the other person and to kind of deny yourself and make yourself as much of a blank screen, you know, as possible. And like, uh, like a lot, like when I was in psychoanalytic training, like they told us we shouldn't even have a website, like let alone a social media presence, you know, we should be wow. like completely, like if we did, it should just be like our name and address and phone number, like contact information, like no pictures, nothing. Like you, wow. know, you have to be like completely like, gone and you know maybe that's not so healthy for us you know <laughs> like 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 it's okay to be introverted but maybe we don't need to be like in complete denial of ourselves like we have to have our lives too and live our life too and that's really what I found like with the podcast for example people ask me all the time like oh how can you be a therapist and have a podcast and talk so openly about things and it's like well I have to, I have to be able to be myself too because I realize at a certain point it's not healthy for me to like completely deny myself and like in fact my whole like development and why I'm such a good listener is because of like my childhood and the way I grew up and how I had to kind of like disappear in order to like be there for the others you know so to keep everything kind of calm or whatever and it's probably a similar experience for a lot of people who end up in this profession so maybe at a certain point we have to like start centering ourselves not in our work with our patients but like in our own lives that should be okay <laughs> yeah 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 I, I i think so i think i think first of all you're right that um as therapists we need to be authentically ourselves and for that to be visible because whether we like it or not um our clients when they meet us will work out something about us pretty quickly you know um and often they're coming to us specifically because of what they see you mm -hmm. know oh you understand this bit I can tell you understand this bit and uh, whether it's artistic or spiritual or um whatever they may or may not know about your history um but I think you're also right about um the self-denial thing you know there's a there's a real danger for us as therapists and, you know, people who follow a monastic path of endlessly denying oneself. And, um, you know, we've talked before, haven't we, about, you know, um, the Satanic Bible and, and LaVey's radical, like, ownership of the self and our own needs um, and how we need to kind of balance those things off so that we don't become you know, uh, martyrs to therapy um, and then find ourselves really resentful or burnt out or compassion fatigued because we're not taking the holidays we need or, you know, um, or setting our limits. Yeah, exactly. Or taking care of ourselves and especially like we're also artists or magical practitioner or both, you know, it's like, like for me, I need to have my art out there. I like to make my art and I can't just like hide it away you know <laughs> like, that's not the way art works 
So it took me a while though to be able to be comfortable doing that or like like I had I had partners before who were like experimental musicians and I would be on their albums or whatever doing some like spoken word or like playing a typewriter or something like that. And when I became a doctor, you know, got my my doctorate, I actually like made them take me off of the music because I was like, oh, "Oh, I can't do that now. I can't be that. I can't have people Googling me and see me on this weird experimental record, you know? I had to actually like, and I had to get in this whole argument with somebody at Discogs where they're like, no, you can't change those things. And I was like, take it off, you know? (laughs) So like, I had to like, I went through that already and I had to become like normal, you know, so that I would be accept an acceptable professional. And then at some point, I guess, because I got analyzed a few times and I realized like, you know, I can't keep like hiding myself and being this like neutral person in my day-to-day life as well like that's not fair you know it's not fair to me yeah and it does come through with people that you work with I think even if they don't know I think just the fact that you're genuine and being able to be like a bit more self-actualized and being able to be yourself in a genuine way it helps other people be themselves in a genuine way even if that's a different way yeah I think that that's spot on I think it's that that journey of like reintegration I think we can become especially as you say like if we gain like a professional status or um yeah that we can become you know this idealized version of of the fantasy of what it means to be a you know a a therapist or a doctor or or a a magician or whatever and and it can kind of almost become slightly super egoic you know where you like you know you're performing it and then and then slowly your own stuff will start creeping back in from the unconscious, whether you like it or not. And it starts leaking out and you think either, Thankfully. That, gets, <laughs> either that gets really messy or if you start waking up to it, you go, I need to let this breathe a bit more. And, and there needs to be more of a connection between these different domains of my life. You know, um, yeah, it is. It is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's also a great Jungian concept or point is the the concept of individuation. And that doesn't mean you're like individualistic and that you're like all for yourself, but it's just individuation that you learn to like become who you are, like in your singularity and your way of thinking and relating to the world instead of just like buying into these ideas of who you should be because you have this position or because you look the way you do, et cetera. Like really kind of learning to find yourself. That's what he means about individuation I think that's really important yeah and I think for me that kind of goes back a little bit to like some of the monastic themes about kind of creating space you know that you know I think I I say in the book that the one of the things that kind of made me think about how does monasticism and chaos magic work together was there's a, there's a bit in one of Peter Carroll's books called Liver Chaos, and right in the index, there's this little thing talk, talking about a chaos monasticism where for like a certain set period of, you know, maybe just a week or it might be a, a few weeks, you kind of opt for a specific kind of the creation of a specific kind of laboratory in which you do, you intensify your work and you adopt some slightly strange behaviors or patterns of behavior in order to kind of focus some intention. Um, And yeah, I think that for me is one of the benefits of this kind of um, 
taking some space uh, is that it, it creates, um, I think like the magical circle, you know, when, when like ideally when you do like a banishing ritual, what you're trying to do is kind of like create a neutral space into which your intentions and your work can come and create something. But you're trying to almost like clear the decks, kind of all those scripts and messages that we might have picked up in the day, you know, um, all those projections, all of those things. We're just kind of going, just for a moment, I'm going to clear the decks so that I can work and create. And, and I think like monasticism and a, and a chaos monasticism is a kind of extended form of that. And I think in the book, I talk a bit about like the Abramelin working, you know, which famously Crowley did or didn't do and or messed up a couple of times, you know, but there's like that prolonged six months, which is a, an extreme version of practice um, towards specific aims and whether, you know, even if we can't do that, because that's completely impractical for our lives, you know, just being able to take some time to kind of challenge where we're at or to just to, as you say, like to integrate, to individuate. Um, yeah, it's really important. Yeah, I think now more than ever with the life of the screens, you know, it's really important to find that kind of space or the shadow side or, you know, get away from the screen for a period of time or not be so performative about what you're doing with magic or whatever, like just online, you know, like have a place for secrets again. Like what happened to secrecy and <laughs> privacy and, and, and these kinds of long-term rituals like you're talking about, like right now we're in Lent, right? So this kind of period where you have like a certain period uh, where you like, you know, decide you're not going to do something, abstain for something for this period as you do in Lent or, you know, any, any sort of kind of ritual period. And I love doing things like that. And you don't necessarily have to be all immersed the entire period because, you know, we have to work and do the other things in our lives. But like, for example, I have a working I'm doing for this Lent period. And I just like always, when I wake up, I just have the candle lit at it going all day. So that it kind of keeps the focus and energy and keeps your attention on it even when you're going through your kind of day-to-day -day life that sounds great yeah yeah no I, I was I was talking to someone about Lent the other day a, a good friend of mine is a is a um is an Anglican priest and and I was seeing pictures of her on Instagram you know ashing people and and um I was talking to one of my sons about whether I, I practiced anti-Lent because <laughs> as a as a recovering christian whether i i considered it an anti-lent but i think i think those disciplines you know we can reclaim them you know we can you know reappropriate them and you know make them up more magical or gnostic make them our, our own in, in you know quite interesting ways yeah exactly i haven't done anything for the lenten period in a long time but, uh, you know, I, I, I have warriors in Santeria and I'm uh, in Kimbanda, in Kimbanda, yeah, yeah. And my Tata in Kimbanda, he just sends you Lenten issues for the period where you work with these certain kind of entities just for that period. They're not like your normal kind of house cabal. Um, yeah. And so he just sent them to me and I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do something then. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and it's kind of like, yeah, and you can see the parallels between, 
you know, those African traditional religions and and saints, you know, within, you know, within the traditional church about that we're inviting these energies in a more kind of intense way, you know, into our environment. Um, yeah, to kind of uh, to cheer us on, to encourage us in our work, you know. Um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, they basically are saints. They're just Catholic saints. They're like underworld saints. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fun. yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a great one of my favorite verses and i think it's in the new testament in hebrews it's a, um like saint paul is talking about like all the saints that like are in heaven or wherever um who influence our kind of spiritual journey and and he says you know we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses and i kind of as a systemic therapist i really like that idea that <clears throat> and I can't remember, I think it was Maya Angelou who um, went into a job interview and, and a friend said to her, you know, why were you so confident going into that interview? And she said, well, it's not just me going into, into the interview, it's me and all my family and all my ancestors, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's that kind of awareness of the, the potency of all the allies that, you know, we can map and um, capture, you know, in our in our sphere yeah i really like that idea yeah that's why i love i love blood ancestors of course are great it's great to uh, venerate your blood ancestors but i also love adopted ancestors like artists that you're influenced by or just different people that you've known or things like that 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 you can kind of adopt into your own personal pantheon yeah yeah i, I think in in the you know, one of the things that we do in family therapy, and I don't know if you use this, is, you know, the idea of a sculpt, you know, um, in the history of family therapy, there was a very famous therapist called Virginia Satia, and she was really into the idea of sculpts where you enact family systems by, you can use it with, you know, literal people moving them around the room, but equally you could do it with artifacts on an altar or with pebbles or buttons or whatever. Um, and then you, you pick things to represent things and then you move them around to kind of represent proximity, but also, you know, wishes and hopes, like you want to move something closer and what does that mean? And um, in, in this book, but in, in the other books I've done, I often get people at the beginning to kind of create an altar as almost like a, a spell for the book. It's almost like, okay, if you're thinking about heretics or you're thinking about monastic inspirations, who are you going to have on your personal altar? You know, are you going to have David Bowie and, you know, or, or you know, and uh, Snoopy or whoever, you know, whoever the people you want to pull in for, um, as your allies to help you explore a certain question i think that can be really helpful absolutely and i love bringing in pit figures that like david bowie that, that like everybody knows of william burroughs and you know they're magicians absolutely and you know the world needs to start thinking of them as such mm. yeah yeah exactly um yeah i know i know julian vane who um, i work with often you know one of the exercises that he does with folks when he's beginning to work with them is to get them to map their allies and inspirations, you know, so, you know, often we think about pantheons in very formal, 
you know, mythic terms about, you know, the Greek pantheon or the Norse pantheon or whatever. But actually, when you look at your personal pantheon of, yeah, your favorite authors or that film that blew your mind when you were 13 or, you know, all of those things and to represent the sort of energetic um, influences that have fed into your personality structure. Absolutely. Carl right now is working on a book that's kind of a magical autobiography of swords. So they've asked him for inner traditions. They've asked him to kind of go through his whole like magical trajectory um, and all the different people he's met and worked with like LaVey and Kenneth Anger and Jen and everything. Um, and I just read the first draft uh, last week and it's so good. And there's so many wow. like, interesting tidbits he's got through. He's kept the journal as a magical practice, like since like, you know, 1984 or something when he, he like every day. And so uh, he started it as a magical practice because some of these people he like read, it was recommended to be able to keep, keep track of your work and what you did and how the outcome was and that kind of thing. And he's just kept it up. So he's been able to go through and like find all these, you know, you remembered all the, like the big points, you know, the big events, but to find all these little details that he had written down of like things like, like he, he like being at the last like uh, psychic TV concert that Lady J was at in, in, in Stockholm in 2007 and like things that they had talked about and things like that. And he's able to like find all these different kind of conversations and notes and things. Um, and it's been really fun and amazing to read. But one of the things he wrote about in the book, because they wanted to make sure it's not just bi biography, but also like magical philosophy, is um, how what he really learned from Anton LaVey was, uh, you know, it really is all about culture and the arts and like these kinds of things, because that's what really influences, you know, culture at large. And uh, that's what really kind of influences you yeah, like as a young person, like you said, your favorite authors and musicians that kind of seep in and then they, they lead you to other things that they were influenced by authors they read and things and it kind of keeps going and going. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and I think I, I, I also liked um, LaVey's idea of what he I think he called the total environment where, you know, as a as a left-hand path practitioner, you took a radical degree of responsibility for your own, the creation of your own environment. And, um, and I think that goes back to the mapping of influences, like, and, and kind of, but taking like radical ownership of, yeah, you know, I remember when I was 12 and I found that David Bowie album, Scary Monsters, and it was like, oh my God, you know, something shifted in my psyche that, you know, um, was massive and, and kind of embracing that and um, thinking about how I could explore that further and what that represented um, for me, you know, both in terms of sexuality, gender identity, all sorts of things um, and great music. Um, yeah. And, and you're just things you discover about that, you know, like, so when I had a big Gurdjieff period, which I, I don't seem to have really got out of, but, but, you know, and then I, and then I realized that Robert Fripp played on scary monsters. And so, mm -hmm. and, you know, Fripp was a student of JG Bennett, you know, and all of that stuff. So it's like, Oh yeah, that's really weird, but really interesting how all that stuff has kind of, kind of influenced me personally. Yeah. And how they all have connections with each other. No, it is really interesting to see. Yeah. But I think that total environment can be like a version of monasticism where we 
we give ourselves permission to take up some space um, so that we can, you know, decondition ourselves, which I suppose, again, is a left-hand path idea about trying to let go of scripts that we might have inherited from our family of origin or our culture that we want to question or, um, you know, uh, let go of and decondition ourselves. So I think, yeah, it can create that space for that to happen which I think is similar to the therapy room in some ways, you know, that good therapy when it's, when it's working, it creates that magical circle. And, you know, you were talking about therapeutic abstinence. Um, although I don't use it a lot myself, I can see how that the neutrality of that can create a, a laboratory of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. Where someone that actually has this kind of space carved out that you usually don't have because usually people are really engaging or sharing also or giving advice or trying to help you fix something. But when the analyst or the therapist really steps back and doesn't engage in those kind of normal social relations, it really opens up the space for someone to kind of find their own footing and move in a different way, you know, yeah, not yeah. just reacting uh, with the other all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and I think it, it invites, you know, uh, without sounding too grandiose, it invites that, you know, it's like the therapist, a psychopomp kind of helping the client access those bits of their universe that maybe they've lost or have gone, have got cut off from. Um, yeah. So it's like that creation of that, those rich connections becomes more possible, you know, um, when that space is used well and creatively. Absolutely. And that's reminding me a lot of like, when I saw Alan Moore talk uh, a few years back, um, you know, he talked about how all of these kind how we're like constantly getting more and more divided. All these fields are just like more and more divided into like these smaller and smaller sectors and how he feels it's really time to kind of start integrating them again. So of course, like the psychopomp, the psychotherapist, but developed from the same line, you know, so maybe it's the way to like start bringing things back together a bit more instead of like being so divisive into these like smaller and smaller categories that are like more and more specialized all the time, you know, yeah, looking more I, integratively at things. I think I heard a version of that interview, or at least he was sharing similar thoughts um, uh, on a podcast with Daniel Carter, and he was talking about the solve aspect of culture you know the, the breaking apart and the subdivisions and and he said you know he felt that we were in the coagula bit where things needed to come back together and sort of unify and, and inform each other so yeah yeah it would be and yeah i i think you know i, I know carl's work has really inspired me in, in many ways just thinking about that idea of our culture rather than magic being this discrete little weird thing in the corner. It's about art and music and creativity. And um, I, I, I think I, I was listening to someone talk about William Blake and they were asking um, about Blake's idea of kind of gnosis. And they were basically saying for Blake, gnosis and imagination were the same thing you know so it was like you know the imagination is the gnostic realm so 
if, if you kind of accept that or you embrace that, then art and creativity and therapy and scientific endeavor and all of the and good cookery um, and walking your dog all can become magical activities rather than it being the weird thing you do dressed in black, you know. Yeah, exactly. Not having to be so separated out. I absolutely believe that. Like, uh, uh, I think it, it was, yeah, it was Jen did a, uh, Jen did a exhibition at the Rubin Museum in New York in 2016 called Try to Alter Everything. And, and that they talk about, you know, yeah, try to alter everything, not meaning just change it, but also alter it, like make it holy and make it spiritual wow. and like make, actually it was one of my cut-ups. I remember that I made around the same time um, and I think I integrated it. I like wrote a review of that show of Jen's, um, but the, the uh, cut-up ended up saying everything, everything is a magical activity. And I was like, whoa, that's so true. It's like, thank you, cut-ups. <laughs> everything is yeah. a magical activity. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's... Or it can be, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything becomes, you know, kind of sacred you know um as life should be yeah absolutely. we were all appreciating it yeah <laughs> so 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 it was it was really interesting you know in the book to kind of make those connections between chaos magic and monasticism and then you know one of the things that it that it talked about was this thing called the new monasticism which was you know this exploration contemporary exploration of of what that could mean um, you know, through the and in especially through the work of B. Griffiths, who was a Benedictine living in India, who you know he brought together quite radically like Christian traditions and Hindu traditions and had them kind of sitting alongside each other and influencing each other. And then his work kind of trickled down and influenced a lot of kind of contemporary, what we might call interspiritual um, thinking. So, yeah, so um, I have talked to some of those people about the book and they are still a little bit horrified about me um, and they kind of see me as some kind of like arch heretic. Um, but that, I think that's because of, you know, the, the whole magic thing and um, the, uh, the vibe that perhaps chaos magic gives off, you know, in terms of being a bit more punk rock. But, um, hey, I can live with that. I can live with it too. And I also loved how you pointed out the the left-hand path. I never thought of the left-hand path in this way, as opposed to the right-hand path with um, the left-hand path being like this kind of getting rid of all of these, you know, preconceived notions and kind of breaking things down. Whereas the right-hand path is very much like these orders that are like very, for people that don't know, that are very like hierarchical and structural. And you go through these kind of like series of initiations and steps. It's like a very, uh, in like Kenyan psychoanalysis, like obsessional way of thinking and obsessional way of like viewing the world. And it's very much in line with the way our society kind of is already set up. Like you have to like gain mastery and like go through all of these levels and everything. Um, whereas like left-hand path, I never thought about it that way. It's like breaking, breaking that down, getting rid of those kinds of things. I'm definitely on that side. <laughs> <laughs> Always have been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing, you know, I think, like you say, those those exoteric kind of right-hand path ways of being are often about the early stages of life. You know, maybe, you know, like the first, you know, 
kind of 30, 40 years where you're kind of like maybe trying to build your career and do all the things. But but often I think in that individuation process, there's that radical reevaluation where you kind of go, uh, you know, uh, this is not my beautiful life. This is, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. How did I um, get here? <laughs> how did I get here? Exactly. You know, and how do I, with whatever time I have left, you know, how am I going to live in a different, more authentic way that kind of um, embraces what I want? And, you know, there are certain individuals, like you mentioned, Jen, you mentioned Anton LaVey, who kind of get there really quickly. (laughs) Um, But even for those of us who've been a bit rebellious for a long time, um, that there's, there's a richer iteration of that thing isn't there where you kind of go okay um I might have been a rebel when I was you know 16 or whenever but but what's it like to be an integrated version of that you know as I'm in my you know early 50s or whatever it's like what does that mean now um yeah I'm I'm really interested in exploring that for myself yeah absolutely um yeah, Jen never had a re- like a regular job ever. I remember asking her at some point, like, you never even did anything? It's like, nope, like was in the newspaper, like local newspaper at like age 15 for some like little art project that they did, like like writing things on pieces of paper and throwing them around the town that they lived in and like just like leaving them around so people would like yeah. walk by and like pick up these pieces of paper and have like a little phrase or a little saying just to like get a reaction out of people and like that ended up in like the local newspaper <laughs> just yeah. like carried on ever since <laughs> yeah yeah well you know um I, i'm not sure what i think about reincarnation but you know jen was definitely coming into the universe with a very specific energy and <laughs> and and you know lived very true to that for all their life as far as i can see yeah, it's really true. Really went for it. It was hardcore. Definitely hardcore. And Carl and I was also talking about and was also kind of a hippie at heart. Like like uh yeah, like living in communes and stuff was was kind of coming up coming of age at a time where people were doing that. So it was kind of like just like got right into the kind of hippie art commune scene and just yeah, went from there. Yeah. Yeah. There was definitely in that work, there was a very, well, as it says on the label, it it was a tribe, wasn't it? So it was very relational, um, which is something that I don't naturally go to, but for some people it's their thing about creating a community and um, inspiring others to consider new ways of living. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah, very, inspiring although you know as someone who goes running screaming from big communities i couldn't do it myself but, uh, but I, you can really... do it online have an online network or like i like the 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 topi rituals that you do on the 23rd of every month and do the sigils do the sigils by yourself you yeah. know they would send them into a headquarters but it was just really your own personal ritual that you do by yourself but you know that there's other people out there doing it at the same time as you, but you're not necessarily around them. But, you know, also yeah. who knows how consciousness works, like how far consciousness spreads out. I don't know. Yeah, but anyway, like, the kind of power that that happens when people are doing a ritual at the same time. Um, yeah. Whether they're together or not. Yeah. 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 So, so that good example of a, a collective ritual for introverts. 
Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect for me. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Collective ritual for introverts. And I have to say, it's as as what happens when talking with magical people such as yourself, all the things we talked about are kind of things that I've been working on this past couple of days because, well, not only looking through your book again, because uh, I read it originally last year, um, but also like we are putting together our next series of like morbid anatomy events. And the next one that's going to be in April is April 16th, I believe. Um, someone's talking about total environments. Uh, Anders Lundgren, who's is a priest in the Church of Satan, he's talking about total environments through using the film Westworld and the series Westworld. Because apparently Anton LaVey really liked the original movie Westworld and this whole idea of this like total environment that people built and like it was like a theme park where you could yeah. go in and yeah do the whole thing and robots you know yeah you know, exactly you know. <laughs> yeah I think he's he called it Westworld total environments gamification and ghosts in the machine wow that sounds like an amazing lecture and it's gonna um, be a good one yeah 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 and, and I, yeah and I think that for me that that as I think I've said, you know, that really connects to both the artist in me and the monastic in me. That idea of creating those creative spaces that um, allow us just to acknowledge and embrace the truth of who we are and, and who we want to be in the world. I think that's a really uh, amazing thing. Yeah, really carving out a space for ourselves. You can do it kind of psychically with like the psychoanalytic session and you can do it like physically and creating your own kind of physical total environment space, whether it's your entire home or just like a room in your home or yeah. in your cellar or something like that, you know. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Yeah, and Carl and I are also developing a class for a course for morbid anatomy um, that's going to be four classes where we're teaching like the magic of the cut up method. So that also fit, fits in with everything. Mm. All the data and the burrows and Topi and the whole thing. Yeah. And, and again, I think that for me goes back to um, that very left-hand pathway of understanding our, our ego, you know, that, that the ego is something that we work with and embrace, but also cut up, you know? So it's like, rather than it being like the standard spiritual thing about relinquishing the ego, um, rather as than- As if that, we could. Yeah, as if we could, <laughs> as if we could. But, but rather than that, we, 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 we work with it consciously to, to find out what it, you know, its true potential, you know? Um, and in and yeah, and invite you know chaos and creativity into that process. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a, yeah. No, I completely see how that works. Yeah, no, I'm definitely. It's like the ego definitely gets in the way sometimes, and you have to like learn to kind of circumvent it. But like, you can't get rid of it altogether because it's the way. It's like our interface. You know, it's like then what will we be? We'll just be like psychotic or something, or we wouldn't be aware of ourselves. We would like disappear, you know, mm. uh, at least as far as we could tell, I imagine. So, yeah, if we want to exist, then we have to have at least a little bit of an ego. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think and I think for me, you know, one of the, the, the big lessons through my own spiritual work has been that we're in a, a cycle of finding who we are, relinquishing who we are 
to find who we are again. And so kind of going through that iterative process, um, you know, of al that alchemical process of, you know, um, you know, discovering the gold, but then returning to the unconscious blackness and, and, and new material to turn into gold. So it's that ongoing cycle, which is so valuable. Yeah, and cycles of creation and destruction, creation and destruction. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was so lovely to talk to you. Was there anything else you wanted to mention that we didn't get to? Well, you know, I just would say, you know, if people are interested um, in a slightly different way of thinking about um, chaos magic and more contemplative ways of being, quieter ways of being, more spacious ways of being, check out the book. Um, I know uh, Julian and I are doing a conversation at Treadwells um, in May. Um, I'm sure get on the Treadwells mailing list if you aren't. Um, we'll be talking about chaos magic um, and kind of contemplation, left-hand path stuff. So yeah, he's interviewing me about some of the themes in my books so that should be fun um yeah so check that out um also the blog of baphomet.com if you want some free reading and links to all the stuff uh julian myself and nikki weird are doing um yeah that's probably about it absolutely and you should come and do a morbid anatomy event sometime that would be really fun present your work there too okay well yeah yeah well We'll have to think about some interesting ideas. That'll be good. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Steve D. For more, join him and Julian Vane live via Zoom on May 25th from Treadwells in conversation. Visit treadwells-london.com for links and more information or Rendering Unconscious main website. You can also listen to my previous discussion with Steve D on systemic psychotherapy, the NHS, chaos magic, and Gnosticism. That's episode 153 of Rendering Unconscious podcast. As mentioned, our next psychoanalysis art in the occult Event is happening on Sunday, April 16th via Morbid Anatomy Museum, live via Zoom. We have Westworld, Anton LaVey's Total Environments, Gamification, and Ghosts in the Machine, presented by Anders Lundgren, and Caligula as a Dionysian Affirmation of Life, presented by Swedish artist River. You can visit morbidanatomy.org slash events or psychartcult.org. Also, beginning September 10th, Carl and I will be presenting a four-part class called Harnessing the Magic and Creative Power of the Cut-Up Method, a la William Burroughs, David Bowie, and Genesis Peoridge. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Thanks to Carl Abrahamson, who created the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. 
The song at the end of this episode is called Resonant, and it's from the album Variations of Chaos that I collaborated on with Pete Murphy. You can find it at Pete Murphy's Bandcamp page, petemurphy.bandcamp.com, and streaming on Spotify and other streaming services. Enjoy. But resonant, out of sorts, perhaps you were told to sit down, look in the mirror and wait, which pricked her, maybe that would be under a new sun, the bridge, the image has been my starting point for this, divination can be created, body will have any on a daily basis for their third mind. If you focus your energy, you can cut into that and you can't get out. Or one thing or another, when I was saying all they wanted, I looked inside. A little dance, films grew high, my life My life, my fire, raised royal, foremost a bodily ego, pioneered, rooted in many cultures, more detailed, cell phone signals, and there's always a pulsating light. The world so entirely strange. And so there was nothing left for us to do but make magic, but make love, but make music and create art.